From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk with Amy Willens about Ivana Trump, the mother of Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric. She died last week. But first, how Trump's fake elector scheme could become the law of the land and what can be done right now to prevent that from happening. Daniel Squadron of the States Project will explain in a minute. Remember Trump's fake elector scheme? It was the idea behind the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Now the Supreme Court has agreed to take up a case that could make it the law of the land. For comment, we turn to Daniel Squadron. He's co-founder and executive director of the States Project, which focuses on winning majorities in state legislatures. He's also a former New York State Senator. We reached him today in New York City. Daniel Squadron, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, the fake elector scheme, just in case people have forgotten, was the idea that when it came time to count the electoral votes, state legislatures could send Congress their own slates of electors that reversed the choice of their state's voters. So in a state like Arizona or Wisconsin, which did send fake electors, and where Biden won a majority of votes, the state legislature, under the theory, could declare Trump the winner of that state, and the Electoral College, with the vice president presiding, would have to count the electors sent by the state legislatures, which would have made Trump, of course, the winner. That was the theory. Pence, of course, refused to go along with it, which is why the insurrectionists were chanting, hang Mike Pence. The case the Supreme Court has agreed to hear is not directly about the fake elector scheme. It's about gerrymandering. But the implications are broad and, and frightening. Tell us about the case Moore versus Harper and the independent state legislature doctrine and gerrymandering in North Carolina. Well, I would say if you thought that the Supreme Court did quite a business to Roe v. Wade this term, just wait to see what Moore v. Harper does to free and fair presidential elections next term. Like many things related to state legislatures, uh, there can sometimes be a tendency to say, oh, well, this is a single discrete instance where state legislatures matter, in this case, on gerrymandering, which was also much the call to arms of 2020. But of course, what we find again and again is state legislatures are critical to many issues. In fact, as we're seeing, to the very existence of the democracy. What this case could do is it could validate the absolutely bizarre and ridiculous idea that state legislatures have a plenary or absolute power over who gets their electoral votes. Ready for this? Before, during, or after election day. That nullification of the votes is somehow a power that was given to the state legislatures in Article 2 of the Constitution. By the way, people hear state legislatures and assume, well, that's wild, but you must mean with the sign-off of the governor, with the sign-off of the state Supreme Court, with the sign-off of the Secretary of State. But oh no, state legislatures means state legislatures. And unlike governors, secretaries of state, and courts, in every swing state in America, 
the state legislature is controlled by a unified Republican majority that has expressed sympathy or support for the big lie. So the case is about gerrymandering, but people fear that the gerrymandering case, North Carolina has extreme Republican gerrymandering, could open the door to making, as you have said, Trump's fake elector scheme legal. What, what exactly would the Supreme Court have to do to make that happen? Well, the Supreme Court would have to uh, do essentially what we saw it do this year in the Mississippi case, which is use the opportunity to remake law and erase a right. It erased the rights around reproductive health and abortion. It could erase the effective right that people have had to vote for president. And here's how. It would say that state legislative action when it comes to elections is unreviewable by state courts. It cannot have rulemaking or things to enact it by election administrators, secretaries of state, and others. And it would have to go one step farther to say that that power is particularly potent when it comes to presidential electors because of Article 2 of the Constitution, which is where presidential electors are. The other components of this are under Article 1. And would need to rely on, ready for this deep cut, the Rehnquist decision or concurrence in Bush v. Gore. Oh. So the Rehnquist piece there said two things. It used that term plenary. State legislatures have a plenary power. But it also said something else. Remember, that stopped the count. In essence, the reasoning was the risk of disenfranchising a few Floridians with hanging chads was not as great a risk as all Floridians being disenfranchised because the state didn't send electors early enough for Congress to be required to count them. So fast forward two and a half years, imagine a world in which folks are fomenting distrust of the election before it occurs, in which there's a major movement that believes the 2020 election was stolen. And by the way, a movement on the left and among progressives who are rightfully concerned about anti-voter laws. Everyone goes into the election queued up and suspicious. Then let's imagine that Steve Bannon or someone else was investing enormous amounts of money and political capital in politicizing election administration, both elected ones and appointed ones, who can't steal the election on their own, but they can create chaos and delays. If you remember what Catherine Harris did as the election administrator in Florida, let's just call that an opening act. And then in that environment, there is the so-called risk that the state will not have a clear determination of its electors before they have to send them to Congress. Well, with this power, that would create a false fig leaf to roll in and nullify the vote, ignore the count, and instead throw the election to their favored candidate, likely Donald Trump. So the Supreme Court will hear arguments this fall about the North Carolina gerrymandering case where the Republicans in the state are arguing that the congressional districts created by the state legislature are not reviewable by any any court that's going to be argued this fall so whatever the supreme court says won't affect the midterms coming up in four months when would this decision take effect well it would be decided after the midterm sometime next spring presumably so it would be active and this is really chilling 
for the 2024 presidential election and the run up to it. How many justices at the Supreme Court right now seem to be in favor of the Republican arguments in this case? Oh, well, this is great news. Only three of them have uh, clearly signaled that they are for this for sure. Alito, Gorsuch and uh, Thomas. Now, Kavanaugh has come pretty close to signaling it. Amy Coney Barrett has not signaled one way or the other. So if you are confident that Amy Coney Barrett will stand up to the uh, conservative movement on this and protect the democracy, stop listening now. (laughs) If the Supreme Court accepted this doctrine, in order for a state legislature to create its own slate of electors that would reverse the majority vote, they would need to control both houses of a state's legislature. And you said this a minute ago, but I just want to go back to that. How many of the swing states of 2020 had Republican control of both houses of their state legislature? Republicans control both houses of every swing state legislature in the country. All of them. All of them. Going into the midterms this fall, how firm is unified Republican control of legislatures in the swing states? Let's start with Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Well, in those three states, uh, it is an uphill battle, but it is closer than people could imagine when they've heard that this is going to be a tough year. In Arizona, you're talking about one seat in each chamber to get to a tie. Uh, that means a couple of thousand votes or fewer. Uh, even in a tough year that need to be flipped. Michigan, you have three seats in each chamber and new and fairer districts than you had in 2020. So the distance is, in fact, two seats today because of a special election uh, in one of the chambers. So you're talking about a better landscape, even if it is a if it does, in fact, end up being a tougher year. Pennsylvania is a bit farther off, especially in the Senate, but even in the House. It's a double-digit number of seats. But here's an interesting quirk about Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, whoever's elected in 2024 to the legislature will take office before presidential electors get sent to Washington, D.C. So you get two bites at the apple in Pennsylvania to try to have a legislature that will respect the vote. It's a tough road, but They also have fairer districts. They've got some great candidates. And so picking up seats in Pennsylvania is really possible this year ahead of 2024. Of course, the flip of that is also true. (laughs) Who is that? That's a dog. He seems to find this especially painful, this this part of Uh, (laughs) it. She's she's a very wise dog. (laughs) The flip is also true. The flip of that is also true, which is in Arizona and Michigan, whoever's elected this November before the Supreme Court decides will have the power to act on that decision. So if people start noticing this and believing it and acting on it after the court decides, it will simply be too late. Okay. Flipping just one branch of the state legislature in a few swing states could prevent Republicans from stealing the 2024 election. But 
people who want to help are going to have a hard time finding out exactly who are the candidates with the best chances of flipping those key seats in those key state legislatures. This is where the States Project can help. That is why we are set up uh, at the States Project. We know that it is very hard to get involved in state legislative elections in strategic ways where you know your involvement will have an impact. And uh, we know that for many people, convincing their friends and family of this, as true as it is, requires some partnership and tools and content. So the States Project gives people the ability to become significant forces to change the outcomes in these states by starting giving circles. These are groups of people started by a couple of friends or um, an existing group who gathers, and they go out to their networks and try to raise dollars to impact a particular state. Along the way, they become experts on that state or others. They um, learn about other kinds of opportunities to have an impact in that state, volunteering or otherwise. And in the state legislative context, these giving circles end up being some of the most significant sources of dollars for these campaigns, period. Because even even, uh, as the importance of state legislatures increases in people's minds, the cost of these campaigns is still a fraction what a congressional district or a statewide race would be. So, you know, people no longer feel like observers to the destruction of the democracy. They're able to gather and do this work and become a consistent force for these outcomes. So democratic victories in state legislatures in swing states could prevent the creation of slates of fake electors in 2024. They could also do some other things like expanding abortion rights. Absolutely. In fact, I'd like your listeners to just do a brief mental exercise. Think about the issue that causes them to listen to this podcast. There's something they care about. Now, it might be your uh, jokes, but probably there's an issue they care about as well. It is almost certain that that issue is one where state legislatures have done more damage or good over the last decade than Congress has. Talked about reproductive rights. How about gun safety? How about jobs, both during and in the wake of COVID? How about healthcare, Medicaid expansion, which some of these states still haven't done? How about schools and uh, whether there are public schools that educate kids, their very existence, infrastructure. Anyone care about roads or bridges that don't collapse? (laughs) This is all state legislatures. By the way, there's one other component of state legislatures too. You know, sometimes they go on to help set the national tone as well. I don't know if your listeners have ever heard of uh, Barack Obama or Chuck Schumer or Stacey Abrams. All of these folks, former state lawmakers, by the way, I don't know if anyone remembers Steve King, who uh, for a time was Congress's leading white nationalist, and uh, that that job has been replaced. He was a former state lawmaker. Ken Cuccinelli, who uh, led the anti-immigration campaigns for the Trump administration, state lawmaker. This is where government is happening. This is where the future is being laid. And Uh, It is also where we'll determine whether free and fair presidential elections are in the past or in the future. The States Project doesn't just raise money for candidates with the best chances of flipping state legislatures. 
you have also had some experience about how to run a good campaign, which some of our candidates really need to find out about. Uh, it is not as easy to run a state legislative campaign as some may imagine. And I would say it's maybe not as complicated as some others would. There are some fundamentals that just experience over time, running races, seeing races, following research and evidence and studies that happen that make uh, campaigns more effective. Here's one from the three-dimensional chess category. The more voters who a candidate meets and has a meaningful interaction with, the more likely the candidate is to win those voters. That is actually lost in a lot of campaigns through the so through the States Project, working with these campaigns, we're able to uh, share uh, best practices and a philosophy on how best to run and win campaigns that, you know, a lot of state legislative candidates are their first in their first race. A lot of state legislative campaign staff are in their first race. These people work incredibly hard. They are in it because they believe in government at this level to ask them in politics where the winds can start to blow pretty hard and it can be hard to break through and understand what makes sense is a really important thing that the States Project has been able to do that I'm really proud of. Now, when you work with candidates on best practices, do you tell them that TV ads are the secret of success in politics? <laughs> we don't. Or, or direct, you know, that that 35th piece of mail is really likely to convince somebody. It is really about getting known by the voters in your district and getting to know them. To the extent the candidate can do that themselves, to the extent the candidate has supporters and volunteers and people who live in the district who can do that, to the extent there's campaign staff and field staff that can do that. You know, this is not the West Wing. It is local politics, representative, constituent-based politics, and reminding folks of that is often the highest value we can bring. And my other pet peeve is likely voters. When I started being interested in politics, the secret was find the people who vote every time and make sure they vote again for you. Stacey Abrams has been working for the last decade to change the whole concept of the likely voter. And I think the States Project has something to do with that. And you know, what we saw in 2020 is that in this environment, who is in the electorate and why they're there is changing. Now, I think it's important to acknowledge that's not always to the benefit of a candidate that you or I might agree with. It is a different world in terms of who is voting. That cuts both ways in terms of who you should be talking to, meaning there might be a new voter who is motivated by something they're seeing on the national scene that you and I would absolutely disagree with. But locally, they might very well be interested in someone who's focused on uh, what's happening in parks in their neighborhood. And so it's really important to remember that that is a dynamic and ever-changing group of folks, not necessarily just because we can motivate people to get up off the couch who would never have before as any single candidate, but because politics is changing so quickly and dramatically that we need to understand that who is going to be in the electorate from cycle to cycle 
is also shifting. And I have one other pet peeve. Get out the vote campaigns before Election Day. When I got started in this, the idea was you put all of your energy into like the last week of the campaign to make sure everybody votes. We now think that voter participation is a longer term project than get out the vote on Election Day. There's no question about that. And it's about engagement. This is actually an important piece of when you look at the stage projects work, you look at some of the other great work that's happening and not mixing them up. We're believers that you need to both be seeding the field and harvesting when the time is ripe. And that, to be honest, those are two different strategies. Campaigns are not particularly well suited to changing the electorate. Efforts that change the electorate over time tend not to be as focused on exactly what's needed with any electorate in any year to win. The idea that we sometimes, through a pendulum, think it's just one or just the other, or one is more inspiring and one is more cynical. You have to do it all. That's the lesson of the right. The right built a constituency around extreme ideas that were very unpopular. And they also ran campaigns that met the electorate in any election where it was. So how can listeners find out more about the States Project? Uh, Well, they should visit our website, which is statesproject.org, statesproject.org, and they can learn just more about states, why states matter, what states we're working in, or they can go and start a giving circle uh, or learn more about it. Here's what I would say. State legislatures are like 50 mini congresses. If you're interested in what's happening at the national political level, because of its impact on our lives, state legislatures are every bit as important. If you're interested because you're interested in politics and what's happening in politics and where the country is going, state legislatures are the best sign. If you're interested in having an impact so that you don't just listen to this podcast and then tear your hair out about how scary things are, because they are, the state's project is a way where you can have a bigger impact than you ever imagined. So one last thing, your whole argument is that state legislatures are extremely important. You were a state senator in the New York state legislature. You weren't defeated. You resigned. Why? Can you imagine leaving the state legislature to work on more state legislatures? (laughs) A deeper conversation here at the end. But I would say on a more serious note, I represented uh, a district Uh, in lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn, where I still live for almost a decade. Uh, It was an unbelievable and unique honor to work for constituents. It's one of the only jobs, maybe the only job on earth where your bosses are a bunch of people with less structural power than you have. And in 2016 and 2017, as with many people, I felt that there was a danger creeping in this country And that the focus and energy, which was so much, it's hard to remember now, so much on Trump as a single unique threat and figure, was missing the point. I had seen through my time at state legislatures, through my work in politics otherwise, that this was a place where the far right, the far extreme right, had invested and built power, even in places like New York, while those who shared a worldview that I had about a healthy, sustainable, and prosperous future 
had basically ignored. And there was this moment where regular people were ready to get involved. So while I was still in office, almost inadvertently, I helped uh, get the first giving circle started. And I met uh, the co-founder of the Stage Project, my co-founder, Adam Pritzker, who also believed that this moment was unique and that without a new effort focused on states and outcomes, we would miss the chance to save the country. And so I resigned office midterm and have been at it now for five years, still working with that original giving circle, still uh, uh, partnered with uh, Adam and humbled by how high the stakes are, but very excited by what we've been able to build so far. Daniel Squadron is co-founder and executive director of the States Project, online at statesproject.org, which focuses on winning majorities in state legislatures. Daniel, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Don Jr., and little Eric. Last week, their mother died, Ivana Trump. She was 73. She fell down the stairs at her home off Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. She'd been born in Czechoslovakia. She was a young ski champion and then a model. She married Donald Sr. in 1977, worked beside him on his hotel projects, and divorced him after 15 years of marriage in 1992 when he had an affair with Marla Maples, who he then married. People Magazine this week said Ivana had, quote, a hustler mentality and an unapologetic way of life. We spoke with Amy Willens about Ivana when Ivana published her memoir, Raising Trump. Amy, of course, is best known for her work on Haiti, especially the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She was also Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's also written for The New York Times and The Washington Post, and she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She teaches literary journalism at UC Irvine, and she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. In our conversation in 2017, I asked Amy what Ivana's memoir, Raising Trump, was like. First of all, I don't like to push a Trump book, but this is a highly pleasurable read. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's like instead of you're reading a real memoir, it's like you're reading a memoir of a character who's been invented by someone. Now, that may be actually how Ivana views herself, like an invented persona who came out of nowhere to become this very rich lady. But it reads a little bit like you're taking one character out of a 19th century novel. And that character is the character of the Ariviste in society who pushes her way. Usually it's a woman trying to make her fortune because there was no other way to make a fortune for a woman in those days, push her way into the circles of the elite and live that incredible life. I had just finished reading The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, <laughs> and I was strongly reminded in the way that Ivana describes the New York society she entered into of the world Lily Bart enters into in that book. Well, I know this. there's a lot about uh, her kids in this book. She is the mother of Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, as we call him. 
Does she have tips for child raising? Is it that kind of a book? It is that kind of a book, and I am so glad I didn't read it before I raised my own children, or I would have felt sorely minimalized by it, minimized. So I'll tell you some of her tips on child rearing. First of all, don't breastfeed. She didn't do this because it didn't mesh with her work schedule, and she is very horrified that Ivanka is breastfeeding her children. She doesn't understand why anyone would do that when formula works so well. What What was her work schedule? She was running a, the Trump Tower decoration. She was she made the Grand Hyatt and branded it for Trump. Wow. He gave her a lot of jobs. Okay. Of course, it helps to also when you're rearing your children to marry someone who owns a skyscraper that you both live in so that when you break up, he can still live in the building in his own <laughs> duplex or triplex. Another thing is if you're going to work and have children, it helps in rearing them to have two Irish nannies who live in. Also have parents who agree with you and agree to live in and so that you never really have to raise your kids. Oh, she also has a houseman. John, what's a houseman? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> His name is David. He's very loyal. What? Uh... Well, very loyal in, in Trump land means has never sold a story about you to the press. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear. And uh, who is her her favorite of the of of her kids? Of course, ours is Ivanka. Ours is Ivanka. Well, I think hers is Donald Jr., uh, the firstborn, the cute boy, um, the capable one. She worries a lot about little Eric. He's really presented as little Eric in the book. He's always too young to understand. He's always off somewhere. All of her emotions are seen either through herself or through Donald Jr. Ivanka is just perfect. Mm. And I think that Ivanka is presented as perfect because her mother is grooming her for the presidency in 15 Wait. years. Exactly 15 years, my friends. 15 years from now. today? From now? <laughs> 15 years from now. She thinks Ivanka could be president 15 years from now. That's what she says. This would be, I guess, our first woman president? And the first Jew. Oh, and the first Jewish president, a twofer. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was a little irritated when Ivanka dyed her hair blue. That wasn't recently, though. No, and you know what was so great about it? Uh, Ivanka dyed her hair blue, and her mother said, no, this cannot stand. Her mother goes out and buys some uh, hair dye and puts it in Ivanka's hair, making it three shades lighter than it originally was, and Ivanka never goes back to her dark <laughs> blonde hair. Now, I, I heard that uh, when Ivana was promoting this book, I think it was on the Today Show, she said that Donald senior, uh, her husband, did not want to name his firstborn son Don Jr. Is, is this a true story? And what was the reason? So they're in the hospital room. They're cuddling the little newborn. And Donald says to Ivana, what should we name him? And she goes immediately, Donald Jr. And he says, no. And she goes, of course we're going to name him that. Why not? What if he's a loser? What if he's a loser? Good this, way to greet your newborn boy. <laughs> this kid is not, not one day old. So what must it be like for Don Jr. today to know that his father, on the hour that he was born, said, what if he's a loser? I don't know. To me, it reminds me of Donald Sr. talking also. I think it was about Tiffany and 
Marla Maple's body and how Tiffany, who was like one year old at the time, would probably have the same attributes of body. Donald was more specific mm. about those attributes. Uh, he sees children only as their future, fully mature selves, I think. One of the things I wondered about Ivana's book is, you know, she, if she was still married to Donald, she would be the first lady. Has, has this occurred to her? She, it has occurred to her um, when she was interviewed recently on the book tour. She did sort of call herself the first lady, and she, she knows that Melania exists, of course. But she justified her calling herself the first lady. Well, I'm the first. I was the first of the first. <laughs> she was the, the, first. the ladies of the Trump. So okay. she, in essence, and she's the mother of the children who are all uh, infesting the White House, and so she feels her bragging rights as. First lady. First-ish. 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 And um, is there any dirt on Donald Trump in this book? You know, there's the scene at the place in Aspen at Bonnie's restaurant where they're all having a very nice family meal. And Marla Maples comes up to the table and says, do you love your husband? She says to Ivana, because I love your husband. And that's when the marriage comes to a grinding halt with this announcement by Marla Maples. So... There is some of that, but there's no, like, inside dirt that you want to know. Like, did they fight? Did she scream at him? You just don't know. It just the marriage comes to an end. And then the uh, story comes out in the tabloids, the the best sex I ever had, Marla Maple says, leading one to wonder about her previous experience. But, okay, <laughs> so be it. And, uh, and then Ivana has to flee with the children to Mar-a-Lago uh, because she doesn't want them to to have to deal with that. So, you know, and it's that kind of stuff, but, but nothing really gritty about him. Don Jr. was was like a teenager when the Best Sex I Ever Had headline appears uh, in, the, in the New York Post. And I believe he was still living in New York City at that time. So uh, not too nice to Don Jr. Right. And Don Jr. was the one who was so angry with him and refused to speak to him for a year. And is there anything about that kind of thing or that thing in well, the book? There is a mention of that thing, but there's also the moment where, and I find this surreal. So they're all living in the same building, Trump Tower, and they're divorced or getting divorced. Anyway, Donald Sr.'s bodyguard security guy comes up to the apartment, the triplex as she always calls it, and says his father wants to see Don Jr. This is when Don Jr. is not speaking to him. But Ivana says, okay, take him. So they take Don Jr. down. And then Donald calls up Ivana and he says, I'm keeping Don Jr. Wow. Even though she has sole custody. Wow. And she says to him, she says, okay, keep him. That'll make it easier for me. I'll only have two here. And like five minutes later, he sends Don Jr. back up. It was just to mess with her mind. She says yeah. it had, she knew he was never going to keep a kid. So that's like perhaps the most dirty dirt you get on Donald. Raising Trump, you might get the impression this is kind of a traditional kind of self-help book about how to actualize your potential and, and be a better person in the world. Is, is that the kind of book it is? I think it's a really, really interesting book, not because it itself is so interesting, but because it's not uh, spiritual. It's not really a self-help book, although there are the wonderful tips on raising children. But it's more of uh, an aspirational book, like, look at me, let me show off in front of you, 
uh, let me tell you about all the things I have that you don't have. I mean, the reading public, what they don't have these things that she has. When she goes to look for a house in Connecticut, you know, admittedly a second or third house she's looking for, she doesn't drive around the way one would normally with a realtor and go from house to house. They take a helicopter <laughs> so that she can see the extent of the houses she's looking at. And she says something like, I picked the one with 17 bedrooms close to the yacht club uh, with a underground bowling alley and three large kitchens. I'm not kidding. <laughs> From a helicopter. But I think it says something about the people who love Trump. Hmm. This book, I think she's targeting that same audience, obviously, because normally I wouldn't buy this book, right? I'm not a Trump supporter and I wouldn't buy it. But I think the people who will buy it just, they love the lifestyle. It's it's a television, reality television, sort of rich housewives of Manhattan and Greenwich book. And you get to see all of the fun she has and all of the places where she lives. This has been The Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, and little Eric, especially as told by their mother, Ivana, in her book, Raising Trump. Amy, thanks so much for coming in. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. We spoke with Amy about Ivana Trump in December 2017. Ivana died last week. She was 73. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.